You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Joe Yannick. It's good to be back. Not not even that long since my last appearance. So This week we are looking at the 1987 film from director Vim Vender's Wings of Desire. The film stars Bruno Gans as Damiel and Otto Sander as Cassiel, two angels out of many that watch over Berlin. They are immortal observers watching the goings-on of the myriad people around them, yet they can never fully experience the full world in which humans live. They cannot know taste, touch, feeling, or love. We'll be talking about the spoilers in regard to this film, its sequel, Far Away So Close, and the American remake, City of Angels. So if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back. We will still be here. So, Joe, when was the first time you saw Wings of Desire, and what did you think? Yeah, I don't really honestly actually remember the first time I saw it, but this time it had been this th- like this time around I had actually caught a lot more. Um uh, I think I I watched it a little closer. Uh I mean I I think that probably the first time I watched this was when I was like marathoning like a bunch of European art house like early on in my like, you know, film awakening. So like now coming back to it with a little more um knowledge and appreciation i just i picked up so much of it and and really i mean i just think it's an unbelievably beautiful film beautiful looking uh and it's just a really moving musing on on humanity and uh, what it means to be human i think i saw this one probably probably early 90s i know i definitely saw it before I saw Far Away So Close, and it feels like I had seen it a few times before that, I saw it enough to fall in love with it. And I just really enjoyed the way that this movie was put together. The pacing of this movie is something very special. It could be considered, you were talking about seeing art house films from Europe, and this 
definitely falls in that area. And the stereotype of art house films is that not a lot happens and not a lot happens in this film for quite a while, but so many beautiful things are happening all the while. This movie, it is gorgeous to look at. The performances are wonderful. I am a huge Peter Falk fan, so I was really glad to see him in this as himself or a version of himself. This movie just hit for me on all levels, and it is has really become a very special film for me. I remember I years ago I tried to show this film to a friend of mine. Now, I'm a, a devout atheist, and I tried to show it to another atheist friend of mine, and she just absolutely refused to see it because – it has angels in it. And I just wanted to, as most atheists do, I just wanted to strangle her. This really has nothing to do with Christianity. This has everything to do with human spirit. Arguably, this is the most atheist-like film about angels. I mean, like, it couldn't be farther from really any sense of Christianity, in my opinion. Uh, I'm sure you could re you can, like, read into it, but it's... It's so much about life on Earth and the sort of passing reality of life on Earth than it is about any sort of, you know, eternity. And even, I guess, arguably, the angels and the eternity is not depicted in such a great light. Uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, I mean, the obvious thing, it's black and, it's black and white, it's stark, and it's uh, a little bit depressing. The humans that we see, because we get so much of this, appropriately enough, a God's eye view, but we also get this kind of roaming camera that is taking us everywhere around Berlin, or at least everywhere on the western side of the wall of Berlin. Now, we have to remember this came out in 87, shot in 86. The wall doesn't fall until 89. So this is very much right in that that sweet spot of we are still at a very divided city. And at this point, nobody thinks that the wall is going to come down. Now, there have been a little bit of thawing of relationships between the U.S. and Russia. Gorbachev is is kind of rolling out uh, Glasnost and Perestroika. But it is still – it doesn't seem like – Reagan's uh, intonation of Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. It doesn't seem like that's actually ever going to happen. And this film, it's it's amazing that we are dealing with these characters who can float in and out where walls don't mean anything to them. But in effect, that is speaking to the wall and speaking to the division and speaking to the division of people. There's a great part where we hear somebody thinking about how Everyone now is their own state, and they take their state with them wherever they go. There are so many great little moments like that, and and even when we have later on in the film a, a moment, I won't give it away yet, that happen, it is taking place almost in that no-man's land between the division of the cities. I love that that is a major theme of this, but yet it isn't harped upon. This isn't a very overtly political film, but that is one of those things that you can bring to this if you want to the look of the city if you were to watch this movie i think you could it's hard to place exactly the year it's shot other than some of the style of the clothes not all of the clothes but some of the style of the clothes are very like late 80s but there's a timelessness and it feels like it could have been shot in the 1950s at times um because of the look of the city and it almost looks just like post-war when i love that we're playing with time as well because we've got 
moments, you know, we, we are dealing with characters who are immortal. Our two main angels have been around from the very beginning. And we get that kind of, I'd say, right around the midway point in the film where they talk about the waiting for man and the way that the world formed. And we have this really, I mean, there's so many beautiful sequences in this film, but them talking about the way that humanity came up and just the, the how they were, they've been around forever, but man is barely a blip on the radar. So we've got that type of time. We keep going back in time. We keep seeing footage from the wartime Berlin, the bombed out buildings, and seeing sometimes how little progress has has been made. We have this one character in here, this older man. The character's name is Homer. And once you find out what his character's name is, it's like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because he seems to be this eternal storyteller, as if Homer was one guys that he lived under, you know, back in Greece, but he seems to be always be there telling the story of man. And it almost seems like he's at the end of his time. And when he's looking around, he's trying to remember, you know, where this particular street was, what was going on. We get these shots of older Berlin um, after the war and just seeing all this ruin and the areas that he's in are pretty much just as ruined. I love that scene. And I was just in Berlin recently. So like, I mean, this is an aside, but I just him walking around looking for uh summer plots and stuff. And it's like knowing that area and what it looks like now versus like that area. Then, I mean, he's even saying that this isn't post-summer plots, but um, it's just remarkable because it's, it's like, I don't know if you've been in Berlin or been there recently, but post-summer plots is like very up, like upscale-ish, almost like almost mall like there's all these like kind of shopping centers it's this big hubbub so like seeing like kind of the difference in just like 30 years 40 years um is incredible another nice thing that happens as well is that i i mentioned peter falk and there's this there are many plots to this many strings going on in this and one of them is that he's in berlin to shoot a movie and that movie is taking place in say 1945 or so there are times where we're getting footage from that time period there's a, a moment where cassiel is in the back of a cab and he or a car and he looks out and he can see the past and then we move into the peter falk storyline and here are all these people in nazi uniforms in period costumes and it's like okay am i seeing this as footage or am i seeing this now as this movie plot and it's a nice way to blend all of these things together clearly how how much of an impact that era had on these this group of filmmakers there's that Herzog I believe it's the Herzog quote where he talks about the new German filmmakers were sort of uh orphans because they couldn't really look to couldn't really look to their father like the, the filmmakers before them because they all were they all were forced to either leave Germany or work under the Nazi regime and make these sort of uh Nazi approved films so it's uh I, I always kind of look out for in these films when those elements are creeping in. And obviously it's like a big part of this film, but it's very much, it's not directly affecting the plot, but it's always sort of right in the background of every shot, which I feel is very much reminiscent of what life in Germany was at this time. It's, it's in the recent past and it's something they're trying to get over, but is always haunting them. Vin Vendors himself was born August 14th, 1945. So he's right there. I can't remember what, uh, when VE day is, 
um, which makes me a horrible American, but at least I know Canada is in a dictatorship. So I do know a little bit of something. So yeah, he definitely was of that new German filmmaker. So he would have been in his twenties, uh, in, in during the sixties and just, yeah, not having those role models to look up to and in that same uh, group of filmmakers. And his early stuff is a lot more rough-hewn. He loved to make road movies. He even considers uh, Wings of Desire to be something like a road movie. And the way that they made this movie is remarkable. He basically had this idea and turns it into a movie i can't say a script or a plot he turns it into a movie within a matter of weeks he writes to peter hankey who had worked with him in the past hankey basically sends him over via mail two scenes at a time for a total of 10 scenes is what uh vendor says sends over these 10 scenes and they become these little pockets throughout the movie for everything else to hang on so we have this whole idea of the the romance that eventually happens or the dialogue between damiel and cassiel the first really scripted scene is this one that takes place in a bmw dealership where they kind of are there reporting out to one another what they've observed in the city and not just what they've observed then but they also talk about things that happened on that particular day you know uh, uh, 50 years ago 100 years ago and it's amazing the way that time is just so fluid to them that they just kind of mix it all together and that's also where we get this first idea of Damiel is not necessarily happy being just an observer that he actually wants to break out a little bit more, but that's just so slight of a plot as we move through. I love the way that it's just this nice crescendo. It's not this, you know, here's the problem in act one. He has to work on it in act two and by act three, things will be solved. It kind of works out that way, but it doesn't play that way. There's that really beautiful line where he talks about just taking off his shoes and wiggling his toes underneath the table and the feeling. Something about that. I mean, it's such a simple concept, but it's it's really evocative because it's just the, to not know the feeling of something so simple and so something we would take such granted for. And that's something that, you know, he's sort of uh, I mean, not dreaming of, but just kind of wishing, you know, he could do. I'd say the majority of this film, we've talked about a lot of like little plot points that go on through this, but so much of this film is just them observing us in turn being that observer too. I mean, the, the camera is a character. The camera is these two guys, but a lot of the time we don't even see the characters. We might get a reaction shot from them every once in a while, but it is it, for a lot of it, it is just People in their apartments or out on the street in their cars thinking and us being able to overhear their thoughts. We are occupying that space that Damiel, Cassiel, the other angels get to occupy. Those moments are so magical to me just to be able to move from space to space and listen in on people. I mean, this movie is a commentary on movie making movie viewing because we are the ultimate voyeur in this place and this these angels are voyeurs they are experiencing life the way that we experience through movies just by being able to observe now they can 
affect things now and then. They can bring a sense of good feeling to the characters that they meet. They can help them possibly cross over into the next plane, as it were. But that's about it. They can't do a whole lot. When one guy that uh, Cassiel is watching decides to commit suicide, he can't do anything about it. I love the when not so later on, but not directly after uh, Cassiel jumps from the statue as well and sort of this like regret, but you know, ultimately it's not going to do anything to him. I, I don't know that that whole sequence was very powerful and it actually leads me to sort of a question. Um, cause I wouldn't, but would you describe this film as bleak? I mean, it's very, it's focuses so much on despair, but there's this, I think there's this element of like hope in everything, even though virtually every character we meet is depressed. Yeah, there is so much loneliness, so much heartbreak, so much people not being sure about things. I mean, hearing the one guy talk about how his mother has died and he's in her apartment and how she saved everything. And then he starts thinking about how she really wasn't his mother. She wasn't a real mother to him. I mean, these are really sad moments. But then for each one of those, you get a counterpoint. You get... The only people that can see the angels, can see Cassiel and Damiel, are children. And to see the look on their face, to see the one little girl who, I don't know if she's getting braces put on her legs or what it is, but she's got these that going on, plus these really super thick glasses. The way she smiles up at Damiel, it's just one of the most heartbreaking moments in a, in a good way. It, it warms your heart. It melts your heart, I should say. There are so many of those moments, the moments when they're in the back of an ambulance and he puts his hand on the mother's pregnant belly as they're being rushed to the to the doctors to have the baby. And that calms her the way that uh, Cassiel is there with the guy who's injured himself on. I think it's a motorcycle accident. And he kind of soothes this guy, gives him something else to think about all of the good things that he's had in his life as he's dying. Yes, it's a sad moment, but at the same time, you know that he's doing him such a favor and doing such a nice thing for this man. And one thing I like about this film, which which we'll get into with the remake, it doesn't spend all of its time with characters who are dying, but it gives us it gives us a little bit of that. You know, I think that we would generally associate angels with sort of helping people cross over, but just this uh, idea of this guardian angel that isn't necessarily always you know, as we've, you know, gone over, not always there during the most pivotal moments, but there during even the most benign moments. I talked about how this movie is kind of a observation of movie viewing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's any small coincidence that the people that we see throughout the majority of this film, not just these innocent bystanders, let's call them, but our main characters, uh, Peter Falk being one and Marion, uh, the, trapeze artist being another that they are involved in show business i think that is definitely a another commentary as far as how we interact with our entertainment and the angels are as amused by these entertainers as we are that they are uh, right there with these people who play pretend who entertain people especially children the the moment that i, I love in this movie too is when the circus is giving a, a performance for these kids and the one little girl who's sitting next to bruno gans and just is talking his ear off just like 
jabbering like crazy. And I'm just like, this is great because I know that this isn't scripted. She just is doing this. And that's the way that the film is going. These moments of observation, again, of us seeing this happen on screen while he's there watching in the movie. It's just wonderful stuff. Can every child see him or is it, it feel, it felt just to me like select children could see him. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's a cutoff. I mean, there's a certain, there's certainly a range of ages. I remember there's the scene where he kind of walks in and the children are huddled around the TV and they don't seem to notice him at all. I mean, surely, I mean, certainly their backs are to him, but it did seem like there was this undescribed divide between the children who could see him and the children or them and the children who couldn't. It almost seems like little girls are a little bit easier to see the angels. I don't know. There's that one moment where we see the boys. There are at least two or three. I think it's two who are playing together. And then there's the third little boy who's off to the side and he is singing this little poem to himself about how, you know, two is better is fine, but three is better to play this kind of stuff. Nobody wants to play with this kid. He doesn't seem to notice guns at all. But at the same time, I kind of wonder if it's just like somebody walking by. If it, if you, sometimes you notice, sometimes you don't. It seems like the, the biggest time that we notice that children notice them is when the angels are someplace where they would normally wouldn't be people. Like we see a little girl looking up in the sky and seeing one of them up on top of a tower. So maybe that's something to do with it. But yeah, I'm not sure if there's a cutoff, cutoff age or anything when it comes to these uh, kids and if it's just certain kids that can see them or not. And they make a point to set this up pretty much right away in the film. It's, I think it's one of the first things that cements uh, the viewer uh, into, like I guess, the, the rules. Um, if you want to call them rules of the angels is because like even something like the black and white, we don't find that we don't really find that out for for certain. If this is the first time you watch it. I think you wouldn't really find it out until about halfway through the film. There are these quick flashes of color, so much so that you might think, what the hell is going on? I know for sure I did the first time that I saw this when we see Marion for the first time. She is, uh, and it's about 25 minutes in before she's even introduced. We get a real quick shot of her on the trapeze in color. And then it's gone. As fast as it was there, it's gone again. And we don't get another color shot until 35 minutes into the film. So another 10 minutes later, when she is in her camper, like I said, she's a circus performer and she's in her camper and she's listening to Nick Cave, which is nice because Nick Cave actually plays a role in the film later on. And again, we get this moment of color and it's just like, what's going on? So yeah, it isn't until probably what, two hours into the film until we really for sure get it really nailed down what's going on. I mean, we'd kind of get some ideas as far as the limitations of these angels, like when what you're saying earlier, him wanting to have these simple pleasures, uh, him wanting to feel his, you know, <laughs> as John McLean would say, make fists with his toes. <laughs> there is a lot of things that they're missing. And really it isn't until he finally crosses over that we know what he was missing and that we know he couldn't have seen color before, but he's so fascinated by that. And I love that moment when he's just like asking this guy on the street, you know, what's, is this, this color, is this, this color, what's that one? And when he discovers that blood has a taste, that's another great thing too. And he's just, when he tastes his own blood and he's just like, Oh, that explains it. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, 
yeah, his awakening, his awakening of hu- as hum- human is is wonderful, and his uh, taste in clothes is also <laughs> quite amazing. <laughs> well, I guess if you can't see colors for <laughs> thousands of years or more than that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, uh, obviously the Earth is only what six thousand years old, right? Yeah, definitely. And humans, humans started right away. So, well, Adam and Eve—they were what fifth day, six days, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these angels only had about five days to not deal with humans. But yeah, you're actually right. I didn't think about that, but he picks the most gaudy, colorful thing he could possibly find in like late '80s fashion, which is in this, it's like sort of salt of the earth fashion but also colorful i don't i don't know quite how to describe that jacket but it's it's quite wonderful clearly he's not a man who knows how to pick up a girl who listens to nick cave because he would not have picked that coat necessarily but he pulls it off i kind of let the cat out of the bag as far as him turning from angel into human but the thing is that that's not the meat of the story like i said that doesn't happen until this movie is what two hours and seven minutes long or something and he doesn't turn into a human until 20 minutes before the end. So really it's the last act of the film is him being human. And he and the girl don't come together until the last scene of the film or one of the, one of the last three scenes. I think it is. This is not your typical romance film. No, I was just about to say that. And for as important as the romance is in the film, it plays such a small role in the actual plot, which I think works so well because it's a film about so many things and it doesn't lose sight of itself because of the romance, which, again, as we'll talk about City of Angels, is maybe a critique that I have of the film, you know, is that it loses itself more in the romance. But we should probably backtrack and talk about the library because that's obviously like it's something that takes up maybe one of the longest stretches in the film of like one location. And it's something that they come back to quite a few times. So it becomes this almost thematic device. And those moments, the sound mix in this film is incredible. To hear these whispers of voices that Damiel and Cassiel and the rest of their angel crew, and this is where we get to see some of the other angels. They're all there. They're all congregating at the library. And it just seems to be such a sanctuary for them. And it's nice that they seem to like the voices. They like the voices in their heads, <laughs> as it were, because, and this just seems to be such a, a place for them to observe and to listen in on the thoughts and to learn and to experience the, the, the product of all of these years of human uh, engineering and creativeness and being able to uh, express themselves through language and writing. Walter Benjamin kauft im 1921 Paukles Aquarell an. Über sie hinweg ziehen die Kraniche und schaut den Kopf fest auf den Die seltene Implantation im kurzen interstitiellen Teil geht ebenfalls mit einer Kulturatur
And that's another thing that I like about this film is that it's a mix of all these languages, that it's not just German throughout the whole thing. I mean, obviously, Falk just speaks English the whole time. Mm-hmm. Marion speaks French mm-hmm. throughout almost all of it. There's so much German. There's some Turkish mixed in. There's a woman speaking Japanese. There are all of these different languages coming together, and the angels can understand all of them. And we just get that flood of voices through the whispers, but then also the way that the music builds off of that as well, that becomes an oral sensation in the library. Yeah, one of the things I really like about the library scene is it says, again, so much without saying anything. Like, we never really get a discernible reason why the, why so many angels like to hang out there. But I really do think it's this sort of, it's sort of this selfish nature, like selfish, you know, I'm using the word liberally. Um, nature of the angels is that they they don't live to to serve humans and to help humans, but they also have this their own desires, and one of their desires just seems to be to be with them and to hear. And what better place to hear the thoughts of of humans than in a place where you're really not supposed to talk out loud? It was so wonderful to look at that scene and not see anybody on their fucking cell phone. This is 1986 when we're shooting this, and it's just like, wow. Everybody's just sitting there reading. That's really nice. And and similarly on the on the on the subway train, um, which is another great place for the angels to sort of hang out. If you were to make that nowadays, I mean, it would be pretty unthinkable to not have people on their cell phones. And then the things they're hearing are like, you know, people talking about social media relationships and all of that, uh, which would just come off as cliches, even if you tried to do it in a, I think, even if you try to do it in an earnest way. Even to get that self-doubt that I was talking about from so many people and to even get that with Peter Falk when he is drawing and we hear the thoughts of him saying that he's a horrible artist and that he wishes that he was better and just all of that. And he looks so calm on the exterior, but to hear that voice over inside, just like, oh, I really can't do this very well. Mm-hmm. And the contrast to that scene would be, I guess, Nick Cave as he's about to go on stage says, um, I don't remember the exact line, but he's like, the, don't don't say that the song's about a girl or something. And then the first thing he says is that the song's about a girl. It's something of those lines. I didn't write down the exact um, quote, but it's funny. He's like having this, you know, this doubt of playing into the persona of Nick Cave and then he just plays in the persona of Nick Cave. And uh, that's so great, especially today when Nick Cave is almost a caricature of himself. But I mean, even in the late 80s, I think Nick Cave's persona was cemented enough where he could have fun with the character Nick Cave while still like commenting on something of of art artistry. And, you know, and you have that with both Falk and Cave. And it's nice to hear on the, the commentary track vendors talking about Nick Cave and the importance that he had in Berlin. And as somebody who's never been to Berlin and somebody who didn't really necessarily understand German politics or the Cold War as much as I probably should have, I never really realized until a few years ago just what an island Berlin was. Like, I I always thought, yeah, I was always curious about, like, how does this wall work? Is it a... Is it a Trump wall? Does it go down the center of the entire, you know, continent? <laughs> is it down the entire country of East and, and West mm-hmm. Germany? Or how's this going? And not really realizing that there is that 
path that you would take from one part of Germany into Berlin and then how it was kind of caught off in the middle. And Vendors describes it as an island. Um, you know, he describes those story points that I talked about from Hanke as little islands that were traversing from one to the other. And he describes uh, Berlin as an island and talks about how people would come there and they would stay there that were kind of these misfits like a Nick Cave, like an Iggy Pop, like Lou Reed we'll talk about later. The culture of Berlin became such that it was so different than the rest of obviously the rest of East Germany, but the rest of West Germany as well. Um, I mean, one thing, if you if you go to Ger- uh, Germany today, um, Kayla Janice actually has a really great essay talking about Berlin, um, but talking about how, because I, I don't know, you're probably aware they have they have all of the markings of where the wall was as like a dotted line, dashed line throughout the city on the streets. So you can see exactly where the wall was in certain places, which she calls sort of like the scar of the city, like this scar running through the city. The areas when the wall was up would be so cramped, like some of them would be so cramped as like the architecture of the streets were not so big always and um, sort of the architecture, the way it geographically sets up. So it's like, it really does create this like sort of claustrophobia in this very big city. She really loves the film Possession, and that plays such a uh, the wall plays such a big role in that. And it's amazing. Just the wall in that film is a metaphor, and the wall in this film is a metaphor as well. But the way that they can play two different roles, you know, the, <laughs> the wall has its own. It it is pretty much the one of the stars of the film because there are so many times where we see the wall, whether it's a fake wall, which is what they ended up doing because they weren't allowed to shoot as near it as they wanted to, or whether it's the a fake version of it or the real darn thing. The wall is a character uh, in the film, and it's a constant reminder for us. So I I would love to go and see that dotted line and to see, because I seem to remember that it was almost arbitrary as far as the way that the wall cut the city, the way that it bisected the city. Sometimes it wouldn't even be in the middle of the street. You know, it's closer to one side or the other, and one part horrifying and one part sort of amazing that the city allows itself to bear witness to some of the history that's not so pleasant because i think you know in america especially we either glorify it like the confederate statues or we just try to pretend like it never existed or both at the same time which i think the confederates again the confederate statues i think are striking examples of this sort of dual ignoring the past and praising certain elements of it we should not forget that this war took place but we should not glorify the losing side yeah i mean especially when the losing what the losing side stood for i mean people will argue argue state rights but i mean come on you could only go so far from saying slavery was a major component of that yeah and it just speaks to what the berlin wall spoke to which is just this kind of arbitrary division between thoughts you know the the communist way of life versus the capitalist way of life and is one better than the other in this case we don't know because we never see that other side we just see the one i do think it's kind of interesting that you know the wall is there but it's not explored as much and i guess it's because maybe it just wasn't something that interests or the i guess the eastern side isn't looked at as much as the western side but i know vendors wanted to shoot over there and he was told by the person that ran the East Berlin Film Co-op or whatever it was, the, the state-run 
uh, thing, of course. <laughs> that And this guy would come over to the West quite often. He would come over to the Berlin Film Festival mm-hmm. and met vendors there and told vendors, if you ever want to shoot anything over on the East, just let me know. I can get all the permits, do all that stuff. And when vendors finally came to him and said, I have this idea and I want to shoot this here, as soon as the guy heard the word angels, you just pretty much shut down because that just went against everything that that philosophy, that political philosophy stood for. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can see where that would be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And then this whole idea of the silent observers I mean, that's one of the ways that the uh, the state was controlling the people was through their observations and gathering dirt on them. So glorifying these characters was kind of a little strange, too, for them. It's sort of I guess it's a fruitless effort to try to imagine what it would have been like, but it would have been fascinating and it would have made it it would have made it stand out quite a bit if he was able to do that, especially with the angels being able to traverse that wall. And to, and to unite these people sort of through the angels. At one point in the movie, Peter Falk is a character in here. And at one point, we find out that he is a former angel. He is standing at this um, coffee stand. I can't remember the, the word that they use for these in, in Berlin. He gives this great speech about, I can't see you, but I know you're here. I feel it. I've been hanging around since I got here. I wish I could see your face. Just look into your eyes and tell you how good it is to be here. Just to touch something. See, that's cold. I feel good. Here. The smoke. Have coffee. And if you do it together, it's fantastic. Or the draw. You know, you take a pencil and you make a dark line, then you make a light line, and together it's a good line. But when your hands are cold, you rub them together. See, that's good. That feels good. There's so many good things. But you're not here. I'm here. I wish you were here. I wish you could talk to me. Because I'm a friend. Compañero. Okay, great. And then he crosses over, Gans crosses over, and and I love this too, that it's such a simple scene that is just him and Cassiel walking together, and they look down, and can see that he has started to leave footprints Mm -hmm. and the way that we shift from one shot to the other shot one's in color one's in black and white i mean this it's so simple but so elegant at the same time so after this happens and gans sells this armor this angelic armor that he has gets kind of ripped off for it he goes back he visits falk falk gives him some money and basically to me almost says like he doesn't say piss off, but he's just like, oh, there's so much, you know, Gans is like. Hey, wait, you wanted to tell me more. I want to know everything. Now you have to find out yourself. That's the fun of it. And then later on, we get almost the exact same speech that Falk does 
to Cassiel. And I'm just like, the second time that he does it, I'm just like, does he do this all the time? <laughs> Let me ask you a, a question I'm pretty sure, but the, the handshake is what makes Damien go become human, right? Between that and his love of Marion. Yeah, because he, he puts out his hand for Cassiel and Cassiel refuses to touch it. And maybe that's what Falk's doing almost is like trying to covert, trying to like coerce angels into falling, which I could make be like an interesting commentary as maybe he's like this, like he, like I guess not heathen sort of like lover of passion and, and trying to try to spread his awareness and sort of corrupt these angels. Uh, and never would he be such a more positive character doing it. Cause it seemed a little almost sinister to me the second time that he did it. I was like, Wait a second, you're trying to convert everybody to come over. <laughs> you're, you're robbing the, 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 uh, you know, the heavens of all these angels if you're going to convert everybody over here. Obviously, I don't think that it happens very much, but it was just like, this seems a little insincere the second time he does it. It, it definitely does. It's a truly funny moment. And I think that's one of the, the real, uh, strengths of casting someone like Falk in that role is Falk's able to play that so straight but also make it so funny and very much like his Columbo character and that he's more aware of it's like he's almost more aware of what he's doing than he wants to put on Falk is just amazing in this role just the the scene with him and the hats where he's trying to find the right hat when he's yeah he's he's obsessed over the hat and then he sees I love when he sees the other guy with the hat and he's and he falls in love with that guy's hat that he can't have And I love how everybody's calling him Columbo. You've got mm-hmm. the kids on the balcony chanting Columbo. People will refer to him as, as Lieutenant. And there's one moment, I love it too, where he's walking around and some kids are like, is that Columbo? And they're like, no, not with that shabby coat. It almost like just justifies his own like dislike of what he was wearing earlier. But it, the funny thing is it's, we, we find out it's his, his, his actual coat too. Like it's the only thing he brought. He does bring such mirth to the role and i love that like i said before he just has this self-doubt even when he's watching himself on tv at one point after he'd given an interview and it just feels like he's not satisfied with his own performance and i i again it kind of is nice that it keeps going back to these storytellers to these actors to these performers I love, too, that the first time we see Marion, she's got these angel wings on, which she complains are made out of chicken feathers. And that nice little moment, because we did talk about how how stark and despairing some of this film is, but there are some great moments of levity, like when she's walking by some of uh, the her fellow circus people and, and Damiel is there with her. And somebody says, oh, look, there goes an angel. And the look of panic on his face is fantastic. Oh, I love, yeah, I love that scene. He's, he's actually, he's so great. And, an- and another funny moment, especially because when, uh, Falk finally sees Demiel and he, he's like, oh, I thought you would be taller. He was only like five, six. Like he's a very short man. And you never really get that impression in the film. He's, he has a very big presence to him, but he was, yeah, he was a quite small man. And he looks so awesome in that black coat with that little like samurai ponytail that he's got going on. He just looks so cool. I mean, these guys look so great, especially in black and white. The cinematography is just freaking astounding. Yeah, it is. I mean, I love, I mean, not to read too much into it, but the, the use of, uh, the DP used his grandmother's, uh, not on every film, but he had in his filter box a, uh, one of his filters was a diffusion filter that was made out of his, uh, um, the stocking of his grandmother from the 1930s. So 
you know, don't read too much into that, but he did carry that around with him as one of his filters. Oh, and it just pays off. There's so many great things. I talked about that moving camera that we get inside of the library. Again, we get so much of the camera just kind of having this life of its own, just moving around, becoming that observer. I mean, our characters can fly and we don't necessarily get a whole lot of that, but we do get these moments of them flying over Berlin and soaring through. But it's just more of this detachment that we can go from place to place, that we can pass through walls. We can go. I love there's one moment where we pull in from the outside through a window and it just, again, is representing our characters coming in from the outside. It looks so good. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the, the camera work as well is the, the shifting POV. Um, yes. We obviously know if we're looking through human or angel eyes by the color, but um, the camera takes on a presence of either angel or human, and it goes in and out of li- literal POV and sort of omniscient uh, POV uh, seamlessly. And I love, I really love that sort of cinematography in any film where the camera will move in and outside of characters because it gives. It really, I think it adds an extra element. I think that just a POV shot can be kind of a cheat shot. And then sort of the roving, omniscient POV that's just God and doesn't ever like reside within characters is great, but also it sort of can be lacking. So when it's able to do both and it works, I think it's incredible and it's a sign of really strong directing. And I mean, I think, yeah, in the library, um, vendors 100% gets his money was worth. I mean, he knows how, he, he, he knows how to exactly shoot that that location well and since we have these characters that are not necessarily grounded to the earth and i'm talking not just about the angels but also about marion as well that we can get these shots from on high and uh, they feel natural to the film you know they they feel they don't necessarily feel like they're pov shots when we are say, 8, 10, 12 feet up in the air. We don't think that it's necessarily Marion looking down on Damiel and that this is her POV when he is there at the circus watching her do her act. But we know that the camera can do this. The camera is not grounded in any sort of normal plane. We can get him sitting on that kind of mound of dirt later on, being sad, trying to find Marion, and we can have the camera rise up, and it's not from a particular person's POV, but it's just there observing and framing him in that circle, the way that those kids come along, and he double-knots the one kid's shoe, this nice interaction, and then we go again back into the black and white, and we have Cassiel there listening in as because you know uh, Damiel knows that Cassiel is... If not Cassiel, somebody's probably listening to his thoughts. Mm-hmm. And to have his one-sided conversation with Cassiel at that point is so great. Yeah, that's another one of my favorite scenes in the film. It's, it, it's not – I mean, I think – and you can almost say this about almost every scene in the film. There's nothing that's like stand out as this set piece because of any plot reason. But there's just these – beautiful like sort of vignettes that are just strung out throughout the film i mean there's not a bad scene in this entire film like i you know two hours is not an extremely long film but it's longer than maybe the typical film um and there's nothing boring there's nothing i think overdone i think that it has a little repetitious nature in the first maybe 45 minutes but you need that i think to really set up the the mood of the film so it's just it's 
it's really well paced and edited. And, you know, I think Vendors really knows what he's doing on the set at every moment. I'm almost glad I didn't know that much about the making of the film before uh, this episode, because I didn't know about some of the things that had gone on with the ending of the film and that it almost ended a little bit different because there's always that strange moment. And even before I knew what was going to, uh, what, what the original intention of the ending was, there's that strange moment where we're about to get Damiel and Marion to finally meet at this uh, second Nick Cave concert. I like how we have these repeated Nick Cave concerts through here and they're about to meet at this concert and uh, inside of the bar area and Cassiel seems really stressed out and at one point he kind of turns and looks at the wall and I can't remember if we see him again uh, other than possibly the last shot of the film but we just it's just this kind of strange moment I was just like okay is he mad that his friend is has left him and that he's about to meet up with this girl and I, I wasn't really sure what was going on I didn't know until just recently that he actually is supposed to have turned into a human as well. And he comes, he was supposed to come back into that bar after Marion gives her uh, extended monologue to, um, uh, to Damiel. I keep wanting to call him Bruno Gans to Damiel. And they have this like cake fight inside of the bar. Okay, I don't know how well that would have worked, and I was kind of glad that they dropped it. <laughs> so I didn't. I don't think that that. I mean, I saw the outtakes, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is kind of cute, but it really does belong as an outtake." I'm really glad that they kept the way that their meeting goes, and that Cassiel doesn't come in because at that point, it's like this guy's kind of a third wheel, man. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> Damiel did this. You need to back the fuck up. <laughs> Yeah, and also it leaves that, uh, like, I think it leaves it open, and I think that you actually ask the question, like, oh, maybe angels can feel something human, like friendship, and the loss right. of friendship, which is a sort of this element. It's like there's they, they give up so much to be human, but maybe they weren't as far from human as they thought. Right. Yeah, I mean, these guys have been friends since the beginning of time. <laughs> So he, they can't have their conversations anymore. They can't sit at the BMW dealer and talk to each other and bring out their little books and say what had happened, you know, a hundred years ago. And I think some of that, that idea of Cassiel becoming human, I think that's where the seeds of Far Away So Close come from. But we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. So until then, let's go ahead and take a break and play a few messages from our sponsors. Every month as they discuss music-related movies. 
iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
All right, we are back, and we are talking about Wings of Desire. The whole idea of Cassiel becoming human, and there was there was some talk at some point of because things actually work out for Damiel, which is fantastic. I love that when he and Marion finally meet. I was afraid that she would just be like, okay, yeah, no, this doesn't work for me or whatever. <laughs> be this horrible ending where she just, you know, it's like, oh, this guy's coming on too strong. But I like that they have their meeting via her dream and that she kind of picks up this poem that he has been saying throughout the film. I mean, the film starts with this, this wonderful poem about, you know, when, when children were children, they experience the world in a different way, which kind of plays into that whole children can see the angels thing. And at one point she kind of picks that theme up and even says a little bit more of the poem and they have this connection. And, and she goes to Peter Falk the one time that she and Peter Falk meet and she's like, Lieutenant, I'm looking for this man and can't say who he is, what his name is or anything because he's literally the man of her dreams but things work out, which I'm glad for. But this idea of Cassiel, him coming over and him not having that good life as, as much as Bruno Guns, as Damiel experiences the good, good part of life when he crosses over, there was an idea that Cassiel would experience the bad part of life. And that ends up being far away so close. So what did you think of far away so close? I don't think it has as much of a impression. It doesn't sort of hit me as hard as Wings of Desire does, which I, I mean, that's like sort of an, an easy out because it, it obviously is, um, you know, the, the sequel and, you know, oftentimes the sequel and in series don't sort of have the, the impact of the first, but, you know, some, some quite do. I, the first is just this like beautiful sort of like floating feeling. And, you know, I think the second feels a little bit more plot, like plot driven. Well, so much of the first one is them as angels and experiencing this world, this black and white world, this beautiful world of them observing people and us getting to experience that by proxy. And it's within, it feels like a few minutes in Far Away So Close that Cassiel crosses over. And then after that, it feels almost like a greatest hits of Wings of Desire. I mean, Wings of Desire was six years before Far Away So Close came out. And there are just so many moments that echo Wings of Desire, but not in a good way. Having Lou Reed play Lou Reed as Peter Falk play Peter Falk, it was just like, well, this doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense, though he's not a fallen angel, of course. But okay, yeah, I remember when there was this character, and I remember how Nick Cave was the singer, and now we've got Lou Reed doing this performance. It felt kind of stunt casty having Mikhail Gorbachev in this movie for five seconds. <laughs> but there are just so many things like the introduction of Willem Dafoe's Emmett, whatever time itself spelled backwards. That character is just terrible. <laughs> I hate this guy. I mean, and Cassiel is so dumb. I understand that he hasn't been human for long, but he should have observed this kind of stuff because Every time, I mean, it, basically, Willem Dafoe plays Lucy Van Pelt, and he just keeps holding that football out, and Cassiel just keeps kicking at it. Every single time he holds the football out, Cassiel comes running along. Okay, I'm going to make it this time. And he just keeps fucking him over time and time and time again. It's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. It feels like this movie, like Far Away So Close, 
should have been a half an hour short that they released as a DVD extra that you could avoid seeing for the rest of your life. As opposed to, I'm a huge fan of Wings of Desire. I love this movie. I want to see what Vendors does next. He fucks it up so bad that I have since refused to see anything else that this guy has done because I hate Far Away So Close so much. And I thought going back to it again after what is it came out in 93. Mm -hmm. So it's been 20 some years since I've seen it. I hated it as much the second time as I did the first time. Uh, I guess I don't feel as strongly, but I think, I mean, I think it plays an interesting segue into also talking about city of angels because in a lot of ways, like you say, you know, as you like, like, you know, like you just said, it's sort of a greatest hits. Uh, City of Angels is this weird remake, which is also just a weird greatest hits at times. Um, I mean, it, it pick, it, it so oddly picks and chooses where, where it wants to basically completely remake the original and where it wants to just be like a very conventional mid nineties romance. It feels like Nicholas Sparks might have written this movie. Yeah. The moments where it's just remaking the original are my least favorite elements of it. I actually don't mind it so much as a, as like a romance film. Like I think those elements are, are pretty decent, not amazing. I think I know already, but I, I think we feel the same way about the ending, which is atrocious and stupid. Some of the elements of just Nick Cage and, uh, Meg Ryan are nice. I mean, like it shows, it shows Nick Cage at a point where he's, able to tone some of his some of his self down and i mean i I love nick cage as an actor but you know in these sort of bigger budget mainstream hollywood films he had a tendency to be very animated um which he is in this movie but i guess i don't have a strong of opinion i just i feel i have sort of a just like hands-off approach to far away so close like i'm not it's not something i'm going to rewatch like i'm going to rewatch uh wings of desire i mean i i would maybe i would probably rewatch city of angels more city of angels is a passable film if I hadn't been a fan of Wings of Desire, if I had no prior knowledge of Wings of Desire, I might have actually liked a lot of City of Angels, except for that horrible, horrible ending. It is sad for no reason to be sad. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it is just the ultimate, it's the ultimate fuck you to our main character, and it's really a fuck you to the audience. I mean, we have this romance that happens so rather than it being paced the same way that wings of desire is where Marion and and damiel really only meet during because there's there's like two other scenes that happen after they finally meet and kiss there's uh, a little bit more of homer that happens at the end of wings of desire and there's a little bit more there's those two there's damiel and and uh, Marion at the circus that's it. You know, the rest of this is, you know, they, their kiss is almost what ends the movie. And in this, obviously, we can't have Nick Cage and Meg Ryan not talk to each other and not act off of each other throughout this film. So he can kind of become corporeal through this. It's like this weird, like, you know, we, we they, they're breaking the rules that we've already set up in Wings of Desire, but, you know, they're, they're their own angel rules. So he can kind of become corporeal, he can be seen, and she can talk with him, and then he kind of flies away like Superman, which I know Nick Cage was a big fan of. This is him getting to live his uh, almost Superman. First off, they, they, they dumbed down so much of the origin of the, of the first one, so 
he can he can choose when he wants people to see him, which is like okay, I guess I get it, but then like then that immediately undermines the like sort of emotional underbelly of the original is that they have to live without being noticed. You know, this movie could have done that. Um, I just think that it wanted to explain a lot of things in the first one, or I'm sorry, in Wings of Desire, and then but then also keep scenes like verbatim like like the reading out of your notebook scene which just felt like a false note in the film and i don't know if it was because i just watched wings of desire because i mean i had i hadn't seen city of angels since it came out so i definitely saw city of angels before i saw wings of desire um and yeah i thought it was a fine film but it was so striking how many of the scenes don't fit in after realizing they're basically just these like um these elements pulled directly from Wings of Desire that just sort of sit flat in an otherwise completely different film. Dennis Franz is in this, but Dennis Franz doesn't play Dennis Franz. Dennis Franz plays Nathaniel Messenger, and again, former angel. Now he's uh, a slob who needs a heart surgery because he overeats. Which is just like, wow, this is not the, this is not the path that Peter Falk would have taken. And this is not the path that Dennis Franz should have taken. I, I really wish that it had been Dennis Franz in here, but no. And rather than having Marion as the, uh, a, a circus performer, now it's Dr. Maggie Rice and she's an all-star surgeon. Of course, she's one of the best. And that's where we get the whole idea of the angels being this kind of keeper of death or the the people that help other people cross over is because they'll stand and they'll basically wait for her to fuck up and then take the <laughs> take the spirits away yeah they really that's the thing i don't that's the one the other aspect i don't like about city of angels is the angels really other than the sh- again another shoehorned in film they try to redo the library where he says he lives in yeah, he's like, we live here, like, or I live here, I, 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 which I didn't quite get. But, you know, they try to throw the library scene in. But other than that scene, we really only get the impression that these angels exist to, to shepherd people into heaven, which makes this film feel way more Christian than Wings of Desire. Those weird moments of them all standing on the beach and looking up at the sunrise. I mean, it's a it's a striking visual, but it really doesn't add anything to the story. It makes it feel very cultish, too. It actually makes them not look cool. Like in like like we were saying in Wings of Desire, they look cool with like the black coats and the ponytails. They look very disturbing when they're all sitting at the beach staring off. Uh, and uh, but yeah, back to Dennis Franz. I agree with you. There's a funniness to becoming human and just becoming a glutton. Like that's humorous, but it takes away all of the again emotional current of getting to be human and getting to live life for its fullest. It's just now he's just living life for the excesses of life. Thankfully, Dennis Franz is a good enough actor and funny enough where he's able to make that role really work, but it's a pretty poorly written role otherwise. Well, and it also kind of doesn't make sense when he says, I know you're here, but I can't see you. It's like, well, if Nick Cage wanted you to see him, he would let you see him. Yeah, yeah, he could just be like, let me see you. Again, it's another thing just pulled directly from the first film that doesn't work in the narr- in the scope of this film, but they were too lazy to actually write it so it would work. And speaking of the, the coolness factor, I mean, those people standing on the beach would probably look a hundred times cooler in black and white. But since this is an American movie, there's no way we can have any black and white photography in it. Oh, no. 
we can have really bad CGI, but no, no black and white. <laughs> and that's one of the things, again, to count, point counterpoint with Wings of Desire, all of those special effects in Wings of Desire, which are a couple shots here and there, they're all in camera yeah. special effects. And I love that. I love that it's all just these double exposures. The, the moment when we have Damiel standing there and his wings behind him as this kind of shadow. And I love too the way that they play with the wings. There's that wing statue that Cassiel moves in front of. So it's like he has wings growing out of him. It's so well done. And in this, there's no real striking moment. You know, like I said, like there's them on the beach. I was like, okay, that looks kind of cool. But again, it would look cooler if if Vendor shot it than Silverberg. But yeah, I guess let's talk about the end more. Part of me wants to defend it in the slightest because there is this aspect of like what's more what what is more human than the ability to feel the loss of love. But the other side of it is it just feels like every typical nineties and early two thousands film where the lead female character has to die for the lead male to feel emotion or to, or to win or to do. And it's like, it's like, I, I'm, I'm already, I've been sick of that trope for so long that it just like seeing this film again, I was like, Oh, of course Meg Ryan has to die right away. Cause that'll make us connect more with Nicholas Cage's human character. Um, so they don't actually play it for like any of like, he doesn't learn. I don't truly feel like the film makes him learn how to be human more. Um, as much as it just like it's this like shortcut to like emotional connectivity as Nick Cage is running out of that cabin and running down to the road to find her dead crumpled body on the road. I got this flash of him in that movie next the uh, Philip K. Dick loose adaptation. So I, I kept expecting him to do, again, a Superman thing and be able to, like, turn the world back or something <laughs> <laughs> or, like, do that next thing and jump in time or, like, look at all the possibilities and make those perfect decisions, which, again, next also has Peter Falk in it, by the way. Uh, so recommended. Um, but, yeah, just uh, I was like, there's no way because I had seen this movie probably 99 on VHS and I was like. There's no way that she can't be dead. Yeah. And then that scene where he's buying the, are they oranges or tangerines or no, no, pears, pears. And he just keeps putting pear after pear after pear in his bag. And it's like that we're supposed to like, I guess that's supposed to be this emotionally crushing scene because she described what a pear tastes like to him. And it was like one of their first moments together. But it's just like actually made me laugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it is especially he's doing it with such Nicolas Cage intensity. Yes. That's one of his that's one of his overacting scenes. There's a few of them in here. Uh, and that's one of the best ones. This movie reminds me, too, that Meg Ryan was terrible to the non-romantic interest. Like she would be with somebody and then somebody else more interesting would come along in so many movies in the 90s. Just this whole idea of like, oh, I'm I'm here with this person, but they're kind of boring. Oh, look at here's Tom Hanks. I'll go fuck him. Oh yeah, Colin Fiore and I we're here, and yeah, he's kind of a dud. He she just uh, as soon as uh, Nick Cage shows up, she's out the door. See you later, Colm. The one fault of the film is they play that relationship so long. Like I think that there's a moment where it just seems like she's over it, and I was like, all right, this would be great. But then they, you know she does go to the cabin with him and all this stuff. And I was like, eh, none of that's needed. And this isn't a film that I can say 
you couldn't cut out 15 minutes and have it be a better film. This is like a movie that's like at a a cool 90 minutes, this would have been a much better film. One of the things that I enjoy about Wings of Desire is more the influence that it's had than necessarily the remakes (laughs) or the sequels to it, because thinking of it, it it definitely seems to have been an inspiration for the play Angels in America, this whole idea of these unseen forces. I am glad that it it played into that. I could be wrong. People could say, no, 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 Angels in America has nothing to do with Wings of Desire, but it seems to me that it does. And it also, to me, kind of played into the um, REM's Everybody Hurts video, which is probably one of the saddest music videos in the world. But that whole idea of these people stuck on the freeway and the observation really reminds me of those, I think there's at least two scenes in Wings of Desire where we have these uh, moments in cars, which is uh, kind of a nice thing that they do there. So I think I would say stay away from Far Away So Close and just watch REM's Everybody Hurts video <laughs> instead. And then City of Angels, I don't think that anybody really needs to rush out and see that one anytime soon, but it's it's a passable film. It's better than French Kiss. It's probably better than IQ. It's definitely better than Sleepless in Seattle, but it's nowhere near as good as When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. I like Sleepers in Seattle a little bit more, but it's somewhere in that, it's somewhere in that world. Not as good as Harry Met Sally, I mean, but for certain, a very, a very typical late 90s romance with some light comedic elements. Very light. And she dies at the end. The end. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Welcome to New Granada, where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets, clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community. But something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped-up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge. You are to take these home to your parents is to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about your people. Mommy's all right. Kid who tells on another kid. He's a dead kid. I don't know how many of us are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in the city are. Tension is rising. You people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. Tempers are raging. Your son and some of his friends are part of this. My son and his friends are part of this town. Time is running out, and something's got to explode. I can assure you everything is under control. They were old enough to know better, but too young to care. Now this town is over the edge. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Jonathan Kaplan's Over the Edge. Where I'll be joined by Leon Chase and Heather Drain. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Joe. Thank you, Joe, so much for coming on the show. What have you been up to lately? So? Uh, less like visible things. Um, I've been doing stuff behind the scenes. Seems like one of the projects I was working on isn't going to come to fruition, which is a little bit annoying. But 
Uh, yeah, I work for a sales company, so that's been keeping me super busy. But I'm producing a short film right now. We're going into production in two weeks called Harsh Reality. So it's like a cyberpunk thriller sort of in the vein of Twilight Zone. So I'm excited for that. It's the first uh, thing I've been produ- I've produced since college, and I didn't really consider myself much of a producer then. Uh, and then me and James, who was supposed to join us today, but uh, had some personal issues come up and couldn't join us, are still doing our podcast. We sort of hit a brick wall, and we're both too busy to do it, so we took some time off, but we had some episodes uh, in the on the burner and ready to go, including one we've continually talked about for a while, which is uh, uh, Decalogue. So we have all 10 episodes, all 10 uh, episodes of Decalogue recorded, and then we actually had to re-record some of them. <laughs> so, but those are going to be coming out very soon. Wow, that is uh, quite a uh, a bite there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm impressed that you did that. That's amazing. It was a little. It's difficult because I mean, it's hard to not continually fall in and try to say the same things about each one. But some of them are some of them are so remarkably stand out that it's easy to talk to talk about. But yeah, the the biggest. The biggest issue was that we lost the recording for the first five, so we actually had to re-record them. So talking about them again was emotionally draining. It's done, and I backed it up in two places, so it's not it's not going to be lost this time, I hope. Well, where can people go and find out more about you and your projects? Um, Small Screen Cinema is a Facebook group, and then also we have a website, smallscreencinema.podbean.com, and then uh, the, the, the Harsh Reality film... You can go to the Productions Facebook page. We don't actually have a page for the film yet. Um, maybe when we finish it, we'll create one. But that's Energia Films, which is E-N-E-R-G-E-I-A. All the information for the produ- production is on there. And I mean, on my personal Facebook, if, if anyone is friends with me, I post about it too. Uh, but yeah, um, that should be wrapping in, J- in late June. And then we're going to shoot for festivals next year. So hopefully... Uh, this time next year it will have premiered. Well, I'll be sure to keep people up to date with that via our Facebook group over at uh, facebook.com slash the projection booth. It might be. You can get that information over at projection-booth.com. You can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Standing like this with my ear to the ceiling. Listen, I know it must sound absurd. But I can hear all smelling colors and sound I ever heard. I walk and
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.